Section 12 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees. The Descent of Man, Part 2 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 12. Secondary Sexual Characters of Fishes, Amphibians, and Reptiles. Part 2. The males of certain other fishes inhabiting South America and Ceylon, belonging to two distinct orders, have the extraordinary habit of hatching within their mouths, or bronchial cavities, the eggs laid by the females. I am informed by Professor Agassiz that the males of the Amazonian species, which follow this habit, not only are generally brighter than the females, but the difference is greater at the spawning season than at any other time. The species of Geophagus act in the same manner, and in this genus, a conspicuous protuberance becomes developed on the forehead of the males during the breeding season. With the various species of chromids, as Professor Agassiz likewise informs me, sexual differences in color may be observed, whether they lay their eggs in the water among aquatic plants, or deposit them in holes, leaving them to come out without further care, or build shallow nests in the river mud, over which they sit, as our promotus does. It ought also to be observed that these sitters are among the brightest species in their respective families, for instance, Hygrogonus is bright green with large black ocelli, encircled with the most brilliant red. Whether with all the species of chromids it is the male alone which sits on the eggs is not known. It is, however, manifest that the fact of the eggs being protected or unprotected by the parents has had little or no influence on the differences in color between the sexes. It is further manifest, in all the cases in which the males take exclusive charge of the nests and young, that the destruction of the brighter-colored males would be far more influential on the character of the race than the destruction of the brighter-colored females, for the death of the male during the period of incubation or nursing would entail the death of the young, so that they could not inherit his peculiarities. Yet, in many of these very cases the males are more conspicuously colored than the females. In most of the Lophobranchii, pipefish, hippocampi, etc., the males have either marsupial sacs or hemispherical depressions on the abdomen, in which the ova laid by the female are hatched. The males also shew great attachment to their young. The sexes do not commonly differ much in color, but Dr. Gunther believes that the male hippocampi are rather brighter than the females. The genus Solanostoma, however, offers a curious exceptional case. Dr. Gunther, since publishing an account of this species, has re-examined the specimens and has given me the above information. For the female is much more vividly colored and spotted than the male, and she alone has a marsupial sac and hatches the eggs. So that the female of Solanostoma differs from all the other Lophobranchii in this latter respect, and from almost all other fishes in being more brightly colored than the male. It is improbable that this remarkable double inversion of character in the female should be an accidental coincidence. As the males of several fishes which take exclusive charge of the eggs and young are more brightly colored than the females, and, as here, the female Solanostoma takes the same charge and is brighter than the male, it might be argued that the conspicuous colors of that sex, which is the more important of the two for the welfare of the offspring, must be in some manner protective. But from the large number of fishes, of which the males are either permanently or periodically brighter than the females, but whose life is not at all more important for the welfare of the species than that of the female, this view can hardly be maintained. When we treat of birds, we shall meet with analogous cases, where there has been a complete inversion of the usual attributes of the two sexes, and we shall then give what appears to be the probable explanation, 
namely, that the males have selected the more attractive females, instead of the latter having selected, in accordance with the usual rule throughout the animal kingdom, the more attractive males. On the whole, we may conclude that with most fishes, in which the sexes differ in color or in other ornamental characters, the males originally varied, with their variations transmitted to the same sex, and accumulated through sexual selection by attracting or exciting the females. In many cases, however, such characters have been transferred, either partially or completely, to the females. In other cases, again, both sexes have been colored alike for the sake of protection, but in no instance does it appear that the female alone has had her colors or other characters specially modified for this latter purpose. The last point which need be noticed is that fishes are known to make various noises, some of which are described as being musical. Dr. Dufossi, who has especially attended to this subject, says that the sounds are voluntarily produced in several ways by different fishes, by the friction of the pharyngeal bones, by the vibration of certain muscles attached to the swim bladder, which serves as a resounding board, and by the vibration of the intrinsic muscles of the swim bladder. By this latter means, the trigla produces pure and long-drawn sounds which range over nearly an octave. But the most interesting case for us is that of two species of ophidium, in which the males alone are provided with a sound-producing apparatus, consisting of small movable bones with proper muscles in connection with the swim bladder. The noise made by the umbrinas, cyana aquila, is said by some authors to be more like that of a flute or organ than drumming. Dr. Zautavine gives some further particulars on the sounds made by fishes. The drumming of the umbrinas in the European seas is said to be audible from a depth of twenty fathoms, and the fishermen of Rochelle assert that the males alone make the noise during the spawning time, and that it is possible by imitating it to take them without bait. From this statement, and more especially from the case of Ophidium, it is almost certain that in this the lowest class of the vertebrata, as with so many insects and spiders, sound-producing instruments have, at least in some cases, been developed through sexual selection, as a means for bringing the sexes together. Amphibians Erodella I will begin with the tailed amphibians. The sexes of salamanders or newts often differ much, both in color and structure. In some species, prehensile claws are developed on the forelegs of the males during breeding season, and at this season, in the male triton palmipes, the hind feet are provided with a swimming web, which is almost completely absorbed during the winter, so that their feet then resemble those of the female. This structure no doubt aids the male in his eager search and pursuit of the female. Whilst courting her, he rapidly vibrates the end of his tail. With our common newts, triton punctatus and cristatus, a deep, much indented crest is developed along the back and tail of the male during the breeding season, which disappears during the winter. Mr. St. George Mivart informs me that it is not furnished with muscles, and therefore cannot be used for locomotion. As during the season of courtship it becomes edged with bright colors, there can hardly be a doubt that it is a masculine ornament. In many species the body presents strongly contrasted, though lurid, tints, and these become more vivid during the breeding season. The male, for instance, of our common little newt, Triton punctatus, is brownish-gray above, passing into yellow beneath, which in the spring becomes a rich bright orange, marked everywhere with round dark spots. The edge of the crest also is then tipped with bright red or violet. The female is usually of a yellowish-brown color with scattered brown dots, and the lower surface is often quite plain. The young are obscurely tinted. The ova are fertilized during the act of deposition, and are not subsequently tended by either parent. 
We may therefore conclude that the males have acquired their strongly marked colors and ornamental appendages through sexual selection, these being transmitted either to the male offspring alone or to both sexes. Anura or Batrachia With many frogs and toads, the colors evidently serve as a protection, such as the bright green tints of tree frogs and the obscure mottled shades of many terrestrial species. The most conspicuously colored toad which I ever saw, the Phryniscus nigricans, had the whole upper surface of the body as black as ink, with the soles of the feet and parts of the abdomen spotted with the brightest vermilion. It crawled about the bare sandy or open grassy plains of La Plata under a scorching sun, and could not fail to catch the eye of every passing creature. These colors are probably beneficial by making this animal known to all birds of prey as a nauseous mouthful. In Nicaragua there is a little frog dressed in a bright livery of red and blue, which does not conceal itself like most other species, but hops about during the daytime, and Mr. Belt says that as soon as he saw its happy sense of security, he felt sure that it was uneatable. After several trials he succeeded in tempting a young duck to snatch up a young one, but it was instantly rejected, and the duck went about jerking its head, as if trying to throw off some unpleasant taste. With respect to sexual differences of color, Dr. Gunther does not know of any striking instance either with frogs or toads, yet he can often distinguish the male from the female by the tints of the former being a little more intense. Nor does he know of any striking difference in external structure between the sexes, excepting the prominences which become developed during the breeding season on the front legs of the male by which he is enabled to hold the female. The male alone of the Bufo sicimensis has two plate-like callosities on the thorax and certain rugosities on the fingers, which perhaps subserve the same end as the above-mentioned prominences. It is surprising that these animals have not acquired more strongly marked sexual characters, for though cold-blooded, their passions are strong. Dr. Gunther informs me that he has several times found an unfortunate female toad dead and smothered from having been so closely embraced by three or four males. Frogs have been observed by Professor Hoffman in Gießen fighting all day long during the breeding season, and with so much violence that one had its body ripped open. Frogs and toads offer one interesting sexual difference, namely in the musical powers possessed by the males. But to speak of music, when applied to the discordant and overwhelming sounds emitted by male bullfrogs and some other species, seems, according to our taste, a singularly inappropriate expression. Nevertheless, certain frogs sing in a decidedly pleasing manner. Near Rio Janeiro, I used often to sit in the evening to listen to a number of little hylae, perched on blades of grass close to the water, which sent forth sweet chirping notes in harmony. The various sounds are emitted chiefly by the males during the breeding season, as in the case of the croaking of our common frog. In accordance with this fact, the vocal organs of the males are more highly developed than those of the females. In some genera, the males alone are provided with sacs which open into the larynx. For instance, in the edible frog, Rana esculenta, the sacs are peculiar to the males and become, when filled with air in the act of croaking, large globular bladders, standing out one on each side of the head, near the corners of the mouth. The croak of the male is thus rendered exceedingly powerful, whilst that of the female is only a slight groaning noise. In the several genera of the family, the vocal organs differ considerably in structure, and their development in all cases may be attributed to sexual selection. Reptiles Chelonia Tortoises and turtles do not offer well-marked sexual differences. In some species, the tail of the male is longer than that of the female. 
In some, the plastron, or lower surface of the shell, of the male is slightly concave in relation to the back of the female. The male of the mud turtle of the United States, Chrysemis picta, has claws on its front feet twice as long as those of the female, and these are used when the sexes unite. With the huge tortoise of the Galapagos Islands, Testudo nigra, the males are said to grow a larger size than the females. During the pairing season, and at no other time, the male utters a hoarse bellowing noise which can be heard at the distance of more than a hundred yards. The female, on the other hand, never uses her voice. With the testudo elegans of India, it is said that the combats of the males may be heard at some distance from the noise they produce in butting against each other. Crocodilia The sexes apparently do not differ in color, nor do I know that the males fight together, though this is probable, for some kinds make a prodigious display before the females. Bartram describes the male alligator as striving to win the female by splashing and roaring in the midst of a lagoon. Swollen to an extent ready to burst, with its head and tail lifted up, he springs or twirls round on the surface of the water, like an Indian chief rehearsing his feats of war. During the season of love, a musky odor is emitted by the submaxillary glands of the crocodile, and pervades their haunts. Ophidia. Dr. Gunther informs me that the males are always smaller than the females, and generally have longer and slenderer tails, but he knows of no other difference in external structure. In regard to color, he can almost always distinguish the male from the female by his more strongly pronounced tints. Thus the black zigzag band on the back of the male English viper is more distinctly defined than in the female. The difference is much plainer in the rattlesnakes of North America, the male of which, as the keeper in the zoological gardens shewed me, can at once be distinguished from the female by having more lurid yellow about its whole body. In South Africa, the Bucephalus capensis presents an analogous difference, for the female is never so fully variegated with yellow on the sides as the male. The male of the Indian Dipsis cynodon, on the other hand, is blackish-brown with the belly partly black, whilst the female is reddish or yellowish-olive with the belly either uniform yellowish or marbled with black. In the Tragops dispar of the same country, the male is bright green and the female bronze-colored. No doubt the colors of some snakes are protective, as shewn by the green tints of tree snakes and the various mottled shades of the species which live in sandy places, but it is doubtful whether the colors of many kinds, for instance the common English snake and viper, serve to conceal them, and this is still more doubtful with the many foreign species which are colored with extreme elegance. The colors of certain species are very different in the adult and young states. During the breeding season, the anal scent glands of snakes are in active function, and so it is with the same glands in lizards, and, as we have seen, with the submaxillary glands of crocodiles. As the males of most animals search for the females, these odiferous glands probably serve to excite or charm the female, rather than to guide her to the spot where the male may be found. Male snakes, though appearing so sluggish, are amorous, for they have been observed crowding round the same female, and even round her dead body. They are not known to fight together from rivalry. Their intellectual powers are higher than might have been anticipated. In the zoological gardens, they soon learn not to strike at the iron bar with which their cages are cleaned, and Dr. Keene of Philadelphia informs me that some snakes which he kept learned after four or five times to avoid a noose, with which they were at first easily caught. An excellent observer in Ceylon, Mr. E. Layard, saw a cobra thrust its head through a narrow hole and swallow a toad. With this encumbrance he could not withdraw himself. Finding this, 
he reluctantly disgorged the precious morsel, which began to move off. This was too much for snake philosophy to bear, and the toad was again seized, and again was the snake, after violent efforts to escape, compelled to part with its prey. This time, however, a lesson had been learnt, and the toad was seized by one leg, withdrawn, and then swallowed in triumph. The keeper in the zoological gardens is positive that certain snakes, for instance, Crotalus and Python, distinguish him from all other persons. Cobras kept together in the same cage apparently feel some attachment towards each other. It does not, however, follow, because snakes have some reasoning power, strong passions, and mutual affection, that they should likewise be endowed with sufficient taste to admire brilliant colors in their partners, so as to lead to the adornment of the species through sexual selection. Nevertheless, it is difficult to account in any other manner for the extreme beauty of certain species. For instance, of the coral snakes of South America, which are of a rich red with black and yellow transverse bands. I well remember how much surprise I felt at the beauty of the first coral snake which I saw gliding across a path in Brazil. Snakes colored in this peculiar manner, as Mr. Wallace states on the authority of Dr. Gunther, are found nowhere else in the world except in South America, and here no less than four genera occur. One of these, Elops, is venomous, a second and widely distinct genus is doubtfully venomous, and the two others are quite harmless. The species belonging to these distinct genera inhabit the same districts, and are so like each other that no one but a naturalist would distinguish the harmless from the poisonous kinds. Hence, as Mr. Wallace believes, the innocuous kinds have probably acquired their colors as protection, on the principle of imitation, for they would naturally be thought dangerous by their enemies. The cause, however, of the bright colors of the venomous elops remains to be explained, and this may perhaps be sexual selection. Snakes produce other sounds besides hissing. The deadly Echis carinata has on its side some oblique rows of scales of a peculiar structure with serrated edges, and when the snake is excited these scales are rubbed against each other, which produces a curious prolonged, almost hissing sound. With respect to the rattling of the rattlesnake, we have at last some definite information, for Professor Augie states that on two occasions, being himself unseen, he watched from a little distance a rattlesnake coiled up with the head erect, which continued to rattle at short intervals for half an hour. And at last he saw another snake approach, and when they met, they paired. Hence he is satisfied that one of the uses of the rattle is to bring the sexes together. Unfortunately, he did not ascertain whether it was the male or the female which remained stationary and called for the other. But it by no means follows from the above fact that the rattle may not be of use to these snakes in other ways, as a warning to animals which would otherwise attack them. Nor can I quite disbelieve the several accounts which have appeared of their thus paralyzing their prey with fear. Some other snakes also make a distinct noise by rapidly vibrating their tails against the surrounding stalks of plants, and I have myself heard this in the case of a trigonocephalus in South America. Lacertilia the males of some, probably of many kinds of lizards, fight together from rivalry. Thus the arboreal Anolis cristatellus of South America is extremely pugnacious. During the spring and early part of the summer, two adult males rarely meet without a contest. On first seeing one another, they nod their heads up and down three or four times, and at the same time expanding the frill or pouch beneath the throat. Their eyes glisten with rage, and, after waving their tails from side to side for a few seconds, as if to gather energy, they dart at each other furiously, rolling over and over, and holding firmly with their teeth. The conflict generally ends in one of the combatants losing his tail, which is often devoured by the victor. 
the male of this species is considerably larger than the female. Mr. N. L. Austin kept these animals alive for a considerable time. And this, as far as Dr. Gunther has been able to ascertain, is the general rule with lizards of all kinds. The male alone of the Certodactylus rubidus of the Andaman Islands possesses pre-anal pores, and these pores, judging from analogy, probably serve to emit an odor. The sexes often differ greatly in external characters. The male of the above-mentioned Anolis is furnished with a crest which runs along the back and tail, and can be erected at pleasure, but of this crest the female does not exhibit a trace. In the Indian Cofotis Ceylanica, the female has a dorsal crest, though much less developed than in the male, and so it is, as Dr. Gunther informs me, with the females of many iguanas, chameleons, and other lizards. In some species, however, the crest is equally developed in both sexes, as in the iguana tuberculata. In the genus Sitana, the males alone are furnished with a large throat pouch, which can be folded up like a fan, and is colored blue, black, and red. But these splendid colors are exhibited only during the pairing season. The female does not possess even a rudiment of this appendage. In the Anolis cristatellus, according to Mr. Austin, the throat pouch, which is bright red marbled with yellow, is present in the female, though in a rudimental condition. Again, in certain other lizards, both sexes are equally well provided with throat pouches. Here we see, with species belonging to the same group, as in so many previous cases, the same character either confined to the males, or more largely developed in them than in the females, or again equally developed in both sexes. The little lizards of the genus Draco, which glide through the air on their rib-supported parachutes, and which in the beauty of their colors baffle description, are furnished with skinny appendages to the throat like the waddles of the gallinaceous birds. These become erected when the animal is excited. They occur in both sexes, but are best developed when the male arrives at maturity, at which age the middle appendage is sometimes twice as long as the head. Most of the species likewise have a low crest running along the neck, and this is much more developed in the full-grown males than in the females or young males. All the foregoing statements and quotations, in regard to Cofotis, Sitana, and Draco, as well as the following facts in regard to Ceratophora and Chameleon, are from Dr. Gunther himself, or from his magnificent work on the reptiles of British India. A Chinese species is said to live in pairs during the spring, and if one is caught, the other falls from the tree to the ground, and allows itself to be captured with impunity. I presume from despair. There are other and much more remarkable differences between the sexes of certain lizards. The male of Ceratophora, Aspera, bears on the extremity of his snout an appendage half as long as the head. It is cylindrical, covered with scales, flexible, and apparently capable of erection. In the female it is quite rudimental. In a second species of the same genus a terminal scale forms a minute horn on the summit of the flexible appendage, and in a third species the whole appendage is converted into a horn, which is usually of a white color, but assumes a purplish tint when the animal is excited. In the adult male of this latter species the horn is half an inch in length, but it is of quite minute size in the female and in the young. These appendages, as Dr. Gunther has remarked to me, may be compared with the combs of gallinaceous birds, and apparently serve as ornaments. In the genus of chameleon, we come to the acme of difference between the sexes. The upper part of the skull of the male C. bifurcus, an inhabitant of Madagascar, is produced into two great, solid, bony projections covered with scales like the rest of the head, and of this wonderful modification of structure the female exhibits only a rudiment. Again, in Camellio owenii, from the west coast of Africa, 
the male bears on his snout and forehead three curious horns, of which the female has not a trace. These horns consist of an excrescence of bones covered with a smooth sheath, forming part of the general integuments of the body, so that they are identical in structure with those of a bull, goat, or other sheath-horned ruminant. Although the three horns differ so much in appearance from the two great prolongations of the skull in C. bifurcus, we can hardly doubt that they serve the same general purpose in the economy of these two animals. The first conjecture, which will occur to everyone, is that they are used by the males for fighting together, and as these animals are very quarrelsome, this is probably a correct view. Mr. T. W. Wood also informs me that he once watched two individuals of C. pumilus fighting violently on the branch of a tree. They flung their heads about and tried to bite each other. Then they rested for a time, and afterwards continued their battle. With many lizards the sexes differ slightly in color, the tints and stripes of the males being brighter and more distinctly defined than in the females. This, for instance, is the case with the above Cophotus and with the Acanthodactylus capensis of South Africa. In a quarterless of the latter country, the male is either much redder or greener than the female. In the Indian Calotis nigrilabris, there is a still greater difference. The lips also of the male are black, whilst those of the female are green. In our common little viviparous lizard, the underside of the body and base of the tail in the male are bright orange spotted with black. In the female these parts are pale grayish-green without spots. We have seen that the males alone of Sitana possess a throat pouch, and this is splendidly tinted with blue, black, and red. In the Proctotrus tenius of Chile, the male alone is marked with spots of blue, green, and coppery red. In many cases the males retain the same colors throughout the year, but in others they become much brighter during the breeding season. I may give as an additional instance the Calotis maria, which at this season has a bright red head, the rest of the body being green. Both sexes of many species are beautifully colored exactly alike, and there is no reason to suppose that such colors are protective. No doubt, with the bright green kinds which live in the midst of vegetation, this color serves to conceal them. And in North Patagonia, I saw a lizard which, when frightened, flattened its body, closed its eyes, and then from its mottled tints was hardly distinguishable from the surrounding sand. But the bright colors with which so many lizards are ornamented, as well as their various curious appendages, were probably acquired by the males as an attraction, and then transmitted either to their male offspring alone, or to both sexes. Sexual selection, indeed, seems to have played almost as important a part with reptiles as with birds, and the less conspicuous colors of the females in comparison with the males cannot be accounted for, as Mr. Wallace believes to be the case with birds, by the greater exposure of the females to danger during incubation. End of section 12